I want to believe that if you were to cease the kind of spammy email fundraising tactics and lean into a more designed and kind of more respectful user experience of potential voters, over the course of cycles, you'd be having fewer people become cynical and divorced from the political process. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ben Ostrauer. He was a documentary producer and web developer who has built a creative agency called WideEye. It specializes in design, branding, and digital products, mostly for progressive change makers. Among his clients have been the Kamala Harris presidential campaign, the Biden-Harris White House, the ACLU, and move on and over time numerous Democratic campaigns. I talked to Ben about his entrepreneurial journey the role of design in politics, and what his firm's up to recently. It's a really good conversation. You should check it out. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ben Ostrauer and WideEye. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ben, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, my name is Ben Ostrauer. I am the founder and executive creative director of WideEye, a creative digital agency that has been around for nearly 12 or 13 year, years now, was built to be a creative agency that works almost exclusively with progressive and social causes. I'm a designer and filmmaker by background. I live in Washington, D.C. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Boston. Yeah. What kind of family? I grew up in a, I would say, pretty progressive, affluent Jewish household in, um, in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, so if you know Boston. I have a couple friends from Brookline, and I've been there to visit. It's a tremendous place to grow up. You're surrounded by, I remember growing up almost all of my, I feel like almost all of my friends' parents were like professors at MIT and Harvard and academia was the end all be all of achievement. And it wasn't success in business. It was always about academic achievement. In retrospect, I think it was a fairly, um, competitive and intense way to grow up. That being said, I you know, had parents that both worked in education and my dad was a city planner and had gone to Harvard Graduate School of Design and, and had sort of a design focus on a lot of his work. He was a painter 
and uh, a photographer. And so I grew up in a, a fairly sort of progressive, but also creative household. The two people that I know from Brookline, or I know three actually, Brookline High School, one became a professor of history at Middlebury. One is a organic farmer who runs a subscription vegetable service. And the other was a cartoonist uh, for a while, and then maybe a high school track coach, but all lovely people. It was a great place to grow up. I was, um, before moving to Brookline when I was nine, uh, I grew up in a mostly Irish Catholic neighborhood. Is I think probably the only Jewish kid on the block. All of my friends uh, in, in Brighton, Massachusetts, um, in, in Boston proper. But um, yeah, definitely was a, uh, grew up a hardcore Red Sox fan, Bostonian. And then um, in college, went to went to Vassar College uh, upstate in Poughkeepsie, New York. One of the seven sisters. One of the seven sisters, uh, very proudly. Um, <laughs> it was always the running joke that as a cisgendered, uh, a straight white guy, we were in the extreme minority at a seven sisters school. That wasn't as, as dramatic as it sounds. But uh, yeah, it was like 60-40, women to men. And... Uh, you know, the joke was always that that was great for my dating life, even though it didn't really make much of a difference. But long story short, went to Vassar College and uh, studied film there. Um, and that was actually after a, a stint of, of studying urban studies with a focus on architecture and city planning, which I thought was actually going to be the direction of my career. I thought I was going to be an architect or maybe go into politics in some way in some sort of community leadership role. I lost interest in that pretty quickly because I just fell in love with filmmaking. I fell in love with visual arts. That's where my heart was. That's where I was spending my time. Actually, late in my my years at, at Vassar, switched my major to film because I just fell in love with it so much. Well, that, that makes sense. What was Insignia Films? When I graduated from college, um, I, I knew that I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg, incredibly naive um, and unrealistic. The film business is pretty brutal and it's very hard to carve out a, a steady career in film. I knew that I wanted with all of my kind of film major friends wanted to either go to New York or LA. I was in the New York camp, moved to New York, uh, that summer, right after graduating from college, and started hunting for my first job in film. I actually did have a real love for documentary filmmaking, had been a kind of intern photojournalist at the Poughkeepsie Journal, uh, which is the main paper up there, and found myself more looking for documentary filmmaking jobs than anything else. I managed to network my way to a job at a small production company called Insignia Films. Because I think at the time, you know, maybe five full-time staff led by uh, this wonderful filmmaker and human being, Stephen Ives, who is a Ken Burns protege, who was producing historical documentaries for PBS. His claim, his big claim to fame at the time had been directing uh, a really, really uh, amazing series called The West about the history of the American West for PBS. The first film that I was working on there as basically an assistant, actually there were two films. One was 
called Reporting America at War, which is about the history of, of American war correspondence. It's really fascinating, which was at the time, right at the beginning of um, the second Iraq war, midway through production, we had to kind of uh, make a big shift, but we interviewed Walter Cronkite and Andy Rooney and these unbelievable personalities, uh, Ted Turner, Christiane Amanpour, who I remember, I remember her winking at me at an, in, in the interview and being, you know, feeling like I made it. <laughs> it was really weird, but I was like this 22 year old kid in New York, like meeting these incredible people. So this was an amazing first job. I made barely enough money to afford my apartment in, in Brooklyn, but was getting exposure to how to run a small business, how to run a creative company, doing work that isn't necessarily the most lucrative, but is really edifying. Um, and was working with such brilliant people. I mean, multiple coworkers of mine from the time have gone on to either win Emmys, Oscars, audience awards at Sundance. It's actually, I'm still kind of in awe of, of the like privileged position I was in in that first job right out of college. I ended up staying in this role at, at Insignia Films working with Stephen Ives and his producing partner, Amanda Pollock, for about six and a half, seven years. I didn't really know that in your 20s, you're supposed to bounce around to jobs a lot. And so I also had a really good thing going. I was traveling the country and I was working with these amazing filmmakers and cinematographers. And little did I know at the time was really learning how to run a small creative business. That ended up being the, the, the big takeaway for me. How many people worked at that firm mostly when you were there? Well, it depended whether we were in production on a project or not. I mean, we, we ranged from preparing these large proposals for grants from uh, the National Endowment of Humanities or the, or the NEA or, you know, basically in fundraising mode. Or sometimes we were really neck deep in production. Usually when we were in post-production on a project where we had archivists and researchers and editors and assistant editors, producers all going at the same time. I think a project like that could have like somewhere between eight and 10 folks working on it. In terms of full-time staff, I think four, five, six or so. Uh, it was really, it was small, tight-knit. Um, and as the one of the only permanent staff, I was exposed to everything. I did music research, archival research. I was setting up shoots. I had to be a jack of all trades. That sounds really valuable for what came later. What what was next for you? Um, a late twenties professional crisis, which was fairly substantial. I had actually been a hobbyist designer and web developer. If you go back all the way back to uh, high school, I had actually had a number of internships that where I learned in the mid nineties in the very very early days of the internet, sort of the basics of of digital design and of how to code HTML, a lot of skills that now a lot of folks have, but at the time were pretty rare. I think uh, I was actually the one of the founders of Blue State Digital, um, Yasha Franklin Hodge, uh, was a childhood friend. And I actually, through his mother, got a summer internship in high school at the Boston Computer Museum which no longer exists, where I learned how to code HTML and I learned Photoshop. I was 16 years old. It ended up being that that summer internship uh, 
paved the way for, at the time, what it was a hobby for a really, really long time that then turned into a career. One of the things that um, in the documentary film world in New York, I became known as doing was being able to be like tech support and design support and building the websites for these amazing filmmakers and, and photographers and cinematographers that I got to know. I kind of fell in love with that. And at, at the time when I was trying to forge a career as a freelance producer in television and film, which was ended up being pretty short-lived, a lot of the calls I was getting were much more focused on design and branding because I had this little portfolio that I was proud of and people knew that I could do that kind of work. Weirdly, that over the course of a stretch of like three to four years, ended up overtaking my career and my focus because I was sort of this like new media. It was all called new media at the time. Jack of all trades. We're like, yeah, I knew how to set up a website. I knew how to design a poster. I knew how to photograph an event. I, I was sort of doing it all. And I really loved it. But it, at the time, it felt like just a hobby. There's a certain point where it sort of reached a critical point where I was like, wait, I can do this professionally. My dream of having a production company that produces films the same way my, my boss in documentary filmmaking had, I, it sort of started to register with me that like, oh, wait, I can actually like realize that dream doing what I'm actually doing on the side. And so a lot of those hobby skills, including like at the time I was photographing weddings in New York, actually pretty successfully for a while, I was figuring out any way to like stitch together an income and then sort of realized, oh, wait, I actually have a business here. And I started to formalize it. I started an LLC and I started operating under the name Wide Eye Creative which was at the time partially, it was, it's, a, it's a longer story, I just explained this to my staff, it was actually my favorite lens, my favorite photographic lens was a really wide aperture lens. I needed a name for my photography business, my graphic design business, my web development business that was gonna be able to bridge all of those different mediums and have the domain be available. And so <laughs> I, I registered, Wide Eye Creative that at the in the early days was sort of my freelance LLC. And then basically what ended up happening is within the first year of going full-time, doing that in a committed way, I had some opportunities through some connections. And, and this was right around the time of, of the first Obama election in 2008. I want to ask you to pick up one thread before you get into that, which is you, you intrigued me when you said Blue State Digital. What did you say? One of my friends from childhood ended up becoming one of the founders of Blue State Digital. So what was the point of that? Was that like a link to the political world? Yasha Franklin Hodge, who was one of the founders of Blue State Digital, was a childhood friend of mine. We used to spend hours on end sitting next to each other, watching each other on the computer, learning how to do computer stuff. He was a really talented engineer. You know, I remember doing a lot of design stuff with him. This was like in the 80s. We were like little kids too. Anyway, it was actually through his mother, um, we were close family friends, where I got an internship in high school at the Boston Computer Museum, which all of these years later, I trace back as sort of the early seed for Wide Eye. So it was just sort of this weird confluence of karmic things where Wide Eye and, and Blue State Digital have a lot of similarities and we have similar clients and, and a 
close-knit relationship and, and a lot of respects. We've operated in the same space for a long time. So it's sort of weird that the genesis of WideEye somehow is connected to that, albeit indirectly. You were starting to talk about sort of the founding story for WideEye, you know, the how why you named it, what kind of pieces you're pulling together, your desire to have your own enterprise, which I relate strongly to. Tell me more about how it got going. Well, I mean, part part of it was also this feeling, which I'm sure a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs have, which is that they kind of feel to some degree unemployable by other people. It's a long convoluted story, but, but between a mix of a role that I was very unhappy in at a advertising agency in New York, where I was getting my daily paycheck, working on really kind of cool special effects driven ads, actually, and working on some Super Bowl spots. I was a producer and freelancing on the side. I eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own thing because I'm miserable working for other people. I don't feel like I am, can, am fully in control of my own fate. And that's where I sort of formally launched my full-time practices as wide-eye, as a freelancer. The genesis of wide-eye in terms of what a lot of people in, in DC know us as is about a year into that freelance version of wide-eye. Um, that sort of overlapped with Obama's 2008 campaign, his first campaign. And I remember I'd always had this passion for politics. Um, it was always really important to me. I grew up in a very sort of political and very progressive household. It was always something that we valued, that sort of civic engagement. So when I saw the Obama 2008 campaign, it was this intersection of all of my most profound interests. It was politics. It was design and branding and advertising. For the very first time, I was witnessing a political campaign that was operating with a level of savvy and sophistication of a corporate brand. And all of a sudden realized that, well, not from a business standpoint, but from a creative standpoint, I was like, oh wait, maybe there's a way to be able to do both these things. Maybe there's a way to be able to fuse my kind of hobby interests, web design, web development, graphic design, branding, with my kind of passion for politics. Through some personal connections, got hooked up with a mayoral campaign in Columbia, South Carolina, actually working for Steve Benjamin. I don't think he's the mayor any longer, but was for a very long time and was the first African-American mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. I was hired to design his brand and website for like, you know, a few thousand dollars. And I remember going completely overboard with that, thinking that I could design comparatively small mayoral race um, on the scale of Obama. I mean, not really, but like I wanted to kind of approach things with that level of, of detail. One thing led to another. If you demonstrate competence in politics, you make other people look good, you're going to quickly start getting a lot of phone calls. And so over the next couple of years, started to get pulled into more and more campaigns, figured out how to actually run a business and how to uh, properly build clients, stay on top of invoicing, and um, 
continually operated with a sort of insane um, kind of business approach of I'll fake it till I make it, right? That if I've made it this far into my career, I can figure out the next thing and the next thing and the next thing by overcommitting, basically. And um, I would routinely sign up to take on projects that I probably had no business really of doing or saying yes to, but signing up to do them nonetheless and figuring out how to do them and hire the people that was necessary to execute. It was pretty fortunate that like I knew how to design. I knew how to develop websites. I knew a lot of the basics to be able to run a small digital studio. So I was able to keep my overhead really low. I was also burning out like crazy. And so the next three years was basically the scorched earth process of starting to really grow a real discipline, a real clientele with WideEye, but completely losing my personal life in the process, realizing that, oh, this is why people hire people. <laughs> this is why people start growing their companies, um, which is what I then started to do. Tell me about your first hire that worked out. So the, the thing that I was spending just a wild amount of time trying to do myself was actually develop a lot of the websites that we were building. So at the time, and this is, keep in mind, this is like 2011, 12, 13, digital programs for campaigns were not that big and the budgets were not that big. Digital advertising wasn't what it was soon going to become in the subsequent years. It was largely oh, we need a website and we need an email program. I'm not an email writer and wasn't doing any email program stuff, but I was working with a lot of people that were doing that who didn't have the capabilities or the staff to be able to do the design and production pieces. So I was hooking up with a lot of agencies at the time who uh, work on political campaigns to basically be their production arm, designing the websites the brands, the logos of a lot of these campaigns. And the campaigns kept getting bigger. It went from uh, kind of mayoral and kind of lower tier Senate and gubernatorial races to suddenly high tier races where like I was, um, you know, getting contacted by everyone from folks within the DNC, the Democratic Party, to um, major consultants that I never thought I'd have the privilege of working with. Long story short, I was developing a lot of those websites myself and was completely burning out. And so my first hire, I got lucky through my girlfriend at the time, her brother connected me with, with a guy in DC who uh, was a really talented web developer who had a familiarity with politics, who became Wide-Eye's first web developer. And it just so happens that he was almost as productive as, as I was. And between the two of us really uh, took on an insane amount of work, particularly in the 2013, 2014 cycle. We, I think probably launched something like 50 different projects in some form over the course of that cycle, which at the price point we were working on ended up being an incredibly profitable year. And, um, I, I made the decision both on the heels of a, a breakup with that girlfriend and the need to kind of make a shift in my life. I decided to move from New York to DC, met my, my now wife, like two months having arrived here, that got me 
completely entrenched here in DC and started really building wide eye for real <laughs> beyond just sort of the small studio status that we had into a real company. The, the, there just seemed to be a lot of potential and the demand for creative work for campaigns felt like it was growing exponentially. Let me ask you a little bit about how you saw the market then, because I was running a democratic political campaign software company from well before that. Uh, I was definitely tracking what was happening. I watched firms like uh, Blue State Digital and Echo Ditto when they came out of the 2004 campaign and Liberty Concepts that was up in Boston. And there was right around the time that you were getting going, Articulated Man, which was a design studio in D.C., merged with Mayfield and uh, another firm and, and became Trilogy. And there was the forming of an ecosystem of digital, which in some cases included website, included email marketing, included advertising. There was a kind of a rationalization of a type of consultant. And there's a bunch of other ones, too, that show up each cycle. Clearly, there was a lot of work to do, and it was a growing space. But how did you see that competition, or did it affect you in those early years? I'll be honest. I haven't heard some of those names in a really long time. I, I remember Articulated Man. I remember when they merged and became Trilogy. I was like, oh, man, that's this is like this incredible company. This is are so big. And they've done a lot of campaigns since then. You know, they, oh, you know, uh, yeah. I, and I've stayed in touch with them and I'm, I, I admire them and looked and like, but keep in mind that at the time I was like, it was either just me or just me and one person. I was looking up to these people in a way that like, you know, they felt almost out of reach, but then all of a sudden I was competing with them and not intending to. I think that like, the Blue State Digitals and Trilogies and uh, Liberty Concepts of the World back in 10 years ago, I never really saw as competitors necessarily. I think I admired them. I looked up to them. I was like, oh, I, I, I kept tabs and everything that they were doing in a way that was inspiring me. I just remember at the time it being like a really fertile time for trying new things. I was always being driven by like this almost obsessive desire to do what I was doing as incredibly well. I think that the genesis of Wide Eye, and it's still in our DNA today, is this idea, and we, we tell it to we tell it to our clients, we use this in our sales process, and it's authentic, which is that there's no reason in the world why progressive organizations, social cause organizations, campaigns shouldn't have design and branding and messaging at the level of sophistication of a Nike, of a major international brand. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I don't mean that in like, oh, it should all be this like flashy propaganda because not every campaign requires that at all. But it does require a level of sophistication and I think attention to detail to do really, really well, to create user experiences and brand experiences that are authentic to the people that are interacting with those things. Like that's, that was what I saw in the Obama 08 campaign and also again in 12, but particularly in 08 that inspired me so much is that there was a, an attention to detail and a craftspersonship on that campaign that convinced me that the world doesn't necessarily like get changed by 
good design, or at least not exclusively. And he, I don't think you can win campaigns on good design, but you can create an experience for people, for supporters who are looking for leadership and seeking leadership. You can give them an experience that is emotionally richer and something that they can affiliate themselves with and be inspired by through design. And it was sort of that craftspersonship that was like what was driving me almost obsessively to do work that um, I thought could stand with the best of what was being done in design at the time. So it ended up being that through that sort of obsessive compulsive instinct of mine, I ended up competing with a lot of these other companies in like 2012, 13, 14. There were a lot of new agencies that were digital agencies that were doing email fundraising. They were doing everything but creating a design team. And so wide I would plug in like a Lego block um, with those agencies to be able to produce all of this work, websites, brands, which enabled them in turn to do their work really well. It sounds like you partnered with a, a bunch of them. Is that true? We did. We did. I think um, at the time we were doing a lot of partnering with um, what was uh, then known as Ann Lewis Strategies. They recently renamed. Uh, we were working with uh, Rising Tide Interactive, and also just sort of individual consultants who would hire us, um, who would basically, at the time, they were either kind of one-off consultants or digital directors. Was like that. That was actually a relatively new new role on campaign. Were you partnering with Blue State? Because I remember Blue State at one point jettisoned their design component, or it seemed like that, and wanted to do that externally. We never, I don't think we ever really partnered with Blue State directly. If I remember correctly, they were preoccupied with, at the time with going going after bigger and bigger sort of projects and really leveraging the relationships from their work on Obama in 08 and 12 and doing an amazing job of that. It was a lot of these sort of smaller kind of startup agencies at the time that were doing digital work that, and working with digital directors that admired our work that was the kind of bread and butter of what we were doing. That continued for a number of years, but it got to the point where I think the market was changing, where either we were going to need to join one of those companies and partner permanently, um, which meant that we were going to uh, be doing political work for or work through the lens of fundraising for the rest of time. Or we were going to kind of build our practice separately from that and start to branch out. And that's really what we've been doing since about 2016 or so. I hired my now managing director, uh, Jen Perone, back in 2015, basically is our like operations person who is now a, a just an extraordinarily key asset to uh, the way wide I operates and runs and has helped we've we've grown the company together to a team of twenty five over the last six or seven years or so. I made a conscientious decision that we were going to start doing less political stuff because it was exhausting. It was a lot of repetition, and does not to be critical of anyone more and more with folks that were actually less um, were they were they, they were starting to become more sort of social media oriented digital directors than digital directors that sort of understood the nuts and the bolts of the internet. 
And and what that meant is that we were working with a lot of folks that were like, they're in their, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, having to advocate for like these marginal tiny budgets to be able to create things that should be given much more time, much more money to be able to be done right. And so we, we were, fi- we're finding is that we were becoming more and more just a vendor, a cog in the wheel. As these digital programs started to grow and there were more and more folks grabbing at, at what was not a not that big a pool of money, we were, I think, feeling squeezed out from the process in a way that maybe we we hadn't been even just a few years earlier. And I made a conscientious choice that like my love is, as much as I love politics, I love design more. I love creating products. I love branding in particular. Over the course of all of these years was like, I was also doing most of our design work. And I found that oh, wait, I actually like, am not bad at this. It's not just that like, I know how to do it and I know the tools. It's that I started to really find my voice as a, as a designer and learn what I was good at and what I wasn't and learn how to talk to our clients and partners about creative ideas that are much bigger than just what colors get used and what fonts get used. And, and so we started to become a real creative agency uh, where our best work was being driven by bigger creative ideas um, and by a more sort of in-depth creative approach to solving problems. And what we've really been doing the last number of years as we've sort of grown and scaled is we've been working far more with organizations where we feel like we can have a bigger impact than we have historically on with political campaigns. We do take a handful of political campaigns now and then in the 2020 cycle alone, we we helped launch Kamala Harris's presidential bid uh, by producing her brand and her website and a lot of materials in a very, very narrow amount of time. We also worked with the Democratic Convention. And in 2020, uh, we ended up working on the Biden-Harris transition and the White House. We have definitely a number of, to- number of toes deeply in politics. But if you abstract out and, and look at our, our revenue and our business, it, it's it's actually a very small percentage of what we do now because we we feel like we can have a bigger impact working with organizations that sustain longer, that need to rebrand, build a website that's going to need to last for the next five or six years rather than just a political cycle. Well, let me ask you about that because when I look at your website and I see your client list, organizations that come up on there, I consider them in politics almost exclusively. They are civil rights organizations, they are civil liberties organizations, they are the move-ons of the world, ACLU. And like, do you not, are you counting those as not politics? No, no. I should clarify my terms, which are probably not the same as other people's terms. And this is important, which is when I refer to politics, I mean cyclical campaigns. I think everything we do has a politics or policy angle to it. We're only really doing maybe a couple of electoral campaigns per cycle. And even then, we're not even really doing websites the way we used to do. We used to be like basically a website factory. Now we're, we're doing art direction and branding, which is, I think, where we have the most value early on in a campaign that's going to get national uh, attention. But we're working with, like I think, five different pro-democracy organizations right now working with folks that are on the front lines of literally trying to save democracy in the United States. Yeah, I consider that politics myself. I have a political podcast, which you're currently 
on and <laughs> and and the scope of who I interview overlaps a lot of the leaders of these organizations and I value the work that they're doing in the world. I'm kind of understanding uh, quite an overlap in our interests in in our democracy and and in our politics. And I get the distinction with campaigns, which is a challenging market to run in. But almost everybody I know who has done electoral politics also uh, is very interested in working in the progressive ecosystem more broadly. I would say we absolutely exist and work in the progressive ecosystem that is a signature component of our brand as a company. I think we we try it in, in, a, in a kind of extroverted way to represent ourselves, And this is very intentional, more as a creative agency that plays well with and, and, and should be kind of considered alongside design agencies in New York and Seattle and Boston. And, you know, I think we're, we're really proud of, of that pedigree. Part of that is because that's who we want to hire. We want to hire folks from those types of creative worlds rather than necessarily just digital strategists, for example, from within campaigns. So, so you know, that's an intentional distinction. I think I probably have a habit of saying we don't work in politics anymore because I've been trying to sort of like pry us away and our identity away from campaigns. That being said, and this is authentic to who we are, is that we are deeply entrenched in the progressive ecosystem and every single one of our team either comes from that world or has a desire to work in that world. We've obviously hired folks from, from major international agencies, designers and art directors who have never worked in politics before per se, but everyone has a deep interest in doing this kind of work. So if you, if you look at our clientele, you're absolutely right. I would say that a good 75% has some relationship back to politics and policy, um, whether it's through the lens of racial justice or um, economic reform, election reform, uh, pro-voting uh, initiatives. We work with on all of these, what we consider to be incredibly important issues that are essential to the hygiene and health of United States going forward. We definitely have a percentage of projects that I wouldn't say are corporate, but are more sort of corporate social responsibility, more organizations that have um, some kind of different different niche um, focuses, like we do work in you know for for foundations and for health organizations. We relish the opportunity now and then to work with museums and arts organizations, for example. Anytime we have the opportunity to do something really bold visually, to tell a creative story, and to kind of more and more, we are working strategically to pick apart the puzzle of a organization's identity so that they can communicate visually in a much more clear and emotional way. How do you see the relationship between design and this progressive ecosystem? How well do we do as progressives in using design thinking and good design to promote and successfully advocate for our values and the kinds of policy and politics we'd like to see? That's, I think, the million-dollar question. I would like payment then. For <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it might be more than that, actually. It might be multiples of that. It might be a good portion of your budget, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so I think that there, well, there, there are multiple ways of coming at that answer. I think 
uh, progressives and folks on the left have, I think, always been better at design. Um, what design means is another story. And you're talking about aesthetics, or are you talking about systems, or are we talking about strategy? I think by and large, when people talk about design and politics, they talk about visual design. Without a doubt, the left has been better at that. I like to think that Wide Eye has played some role in, in kind of uh, keeping that reputation strong on, on the left. For example, I've, I've never seen a, a campaign come out of conservative circles that comes anywhere close to, for example, the work done in 2008 for Obama. That being said, I actually think this sort of campaign left, I talk about the Democratic Party and all the constituent branches of the Democratic Party, I'm not trying to cause a stir, we do a fairly poor job of actually applying design thinking, which is a degree of willingness to reevaluate the entrenched systems of how we actually practice politics and leadership um, and redesign them in a way that actually uh, connects with voters and supporters in new and I think authentic and positive ways. One of the things that I think has turned me off from working on campaigns, electoral campaigns, is the frequency with which a lot of the fundraising that happens online devolves into basically spamming old people <laughs> and scaring them. And I think the, the frustration is that, I, you know, I talk to people all the time who are like, oh, the Democrats have a messaging problem. and and while I kind of agree with that, I think that there's we so often work against our own interests in the way in which we actually connect with people um, at the at the touch points they are most frequently connecting with Democrats on email. I think there are probably a lot of digital strategists that would be like Ben, but that's how we fundraise money. That's how we actually pay for people like you on campaigns. And if we ran a squeaky clean uh, digital campaign and messaging where everything was aligned and perfectly synergistic and, and designed, we actually wouldn't see the fundraising numbers that we do if we actually employ these kind of more spammy tactics. Sure, that may be true. But I think the, the bigger issue is that the way decisions are made in, in electoral politics on the left the inability to sometimes distill a bigger idea down to a very sort of simple emotional message and note is something that is a, an epidemic problem on the left. Folks on the left love to talk about policy and the nuance of policy, which is so critical. But I think we frequently miss opportunities to be a little bit more direct and a little bit more visceral and more emotional in a way that I think the best brands in the world do extraordinarily well. Yeah, the, the Democratic Party typically has a, has a messaging problem, but I think the bigger problem isn't the Democratic Party per se or any one individual group. The ecosystem oftentimes has so many different competing interests and is so fragmented that moving everyone in one direction, which is required of, of producing a really coherent and authentic brand is almost impossible. 
I think that's something that's inherent to the left is that it is such a big tent and it tries to be so inclusive that actually being able to tell a, a single set of stories in a really powerful and emotional way in the way that I think you need to is almost impossible. That's really high level. And I, and I think it's probably doing a disservice to a lot of the people who are, all, who are doing extraordinary work within the progressive community all the time. I just think that there's a structural challenge on the left with regards to more creative storytelling about our values and what we do and why we exist and how to invite people into that value system. And there's so many areas in which design operates. Where do you see good examples and where do you see poor examples? There's limited time and resources to do things well. And that notion that writing a short letter is harder than writing a long letter, you know, like if you want to revise and make something really tight, it's harder than kind of just putting it out there quickly. You're getting right to the heart of what is probably more relevant to this conversation, which is how design is actually practiced in politics is it's really challenging. And it, what is expected of designers on the budgets and timelines that are provided to them is not realistic necessarily to be able to create a sustainable community that is able to do that work. And I talk to you know the handful of designers that work full-time in politics fairly frequently and keep up with, with the challenges they run into. And it's, they all say the same thing. Um, and, and I'm happy to, to kind of, you know, be the megaphone for, for this. They are usually brought in at the 11th hour to create a thing that probably hasn't been well thought out and certainly doesn't have the time or certainly the money to be able to do well and, or up to the standard of a full-time or professional designer. Design is subjective. It just is. But I think that um, things like consistency and kind of clear messaging, the kinds of things that in aggregate over the course of a campaign create an experience for voters and supporters, um, that's a little bit more objective. And, and I think one of the things that I think the inherent problem with politics is that it's almost completely reactive. The ways in which decisions are made, graphics or websites or um, campaigns or microsites, whatever gets produced, it's always reacting to something rather than part of a narrative and a plan that is actually given more consideration, that it's more, that's, that's more thought out. Let me ask you about a couple examples of that. Because I, so like, People talk about, and you have that Obama 08 campaign. You think about the logo that they had for that, which is kind of like, uh, it's a little bit Pepsi-ish almost. My own theory is that there's a pretty wide range of what you could have put together for Obama, that when it sits next to his personal coolness and incredible charisma and skill at speaking and the energy that surrounded him in that race, that the logo and the designs 
and the posters, they carry a lot of what he brought and what the people who had passion for him brought to it. I think that you could have done that same logo for a Senate race and people might have thought, ah, I'm not so sure that's really a good. Think about the H that came out for Hillary in 16, you know, which I first looked at it and I was like, wow, that is a pretty boring, not very special thing. But then they did have a proactive plan, it seemed. They had it take on lots of different design around it for different subgroups. And it grew on me over time. And as I, and, and because I was rooting very hard for her to win the presidency and because she really campaigned well as a candidate, I thought. She debated well. Not everybody loves her, but I thought she did a as good a job as most people could do in the circumstances. I, I grew to root for that logo, you know, as well. And that's kind of part one part of a big branding package. And I am no expert in, in this sort of stuff. But like, to me, branding is everything you do. The branding of Coke only helps if someone likes to also drink it. No, the, branding is one of these words that I think is frequently misused, but it also is descriptive of, of everything you're talking about. Every sort of touch point, whether it's the kind of ways in which a brand speaks or interacts with people, that's all branding, right? But but to your point about Obama, yeah, Obama would have been this sort of electric candidate, this charismatic like supernova, no matter what you put next to him, right? And so anything that catches that sort of like glow looks better. There's no doubt about it. It definitely makes a designer's job easier. That being said, at least when we're working on a, a political campaign, and it's something that I, I, I think I would, I would love to see more of in this space um, on campaigns, is a desire uh, less to do what's trendy and maybe is going to like play well on Instagram then then more deeply focusing on the authentic um, personality and value proposition of an individual candidate. One of the things that I always used to do, and I was sort of by accident, when back when I was doing a lot of campaign logos, like I, as I would design the logo next to the person's face, because I felt like the logo needed to look like the candidate, you know, because it was their avatar. And, and logo is only one small piece of a greater brand. But if you're working for a candidate, if you're working for a cause, you want to represent it authentically. You want to communicate the emotional through line of the value proposition relentlessly. And so when I was, for example, designing Heidi Heitkamp's logo for her first Senate run um, in North Dakota back in 2012, I literally, I took her, her portrait and designed <laughs> the typography next to her face, even the shape of the H and the E felt kind of reminiscent of her. The color palette played well against her shock of red hair, for example. I realize that's getting into kind of the specifics of aesthetics, but I think it's a lesson about political branding more broadly, which is that you, you need to respect what you're selling and communicating. The only way you can actually achieve that, though, is a process of giving creative people a bigger seat at the table. And this is, I think this is the one thing that kind of in a nuts and bolts way for what it's worth want to advocate for 
is that I think so often politics is driven by the people with money or access to money. It's the fundraisers, right? And so usually messages that get communicated, whether on email or out on social media, are reactive to either satisfy a specific constituency group for fundraising purposes or to like try to catch a news cycle so that you know you can get some notoriety and so many reasons why there's such partisan divide in this country but one of the many reasons is that um fighting against your opponent and turning them into a, a kind of evil force for um all that is bad in the world is for fundraising purposes it's so that you can um, you know, have a, a really strong antagonist for driving people to fundraise. You can scare people into fundraising, into giving money. And, and that's actually, that's, that's really effective, but I think it's missing the bigger picture oftentimes, which is that um, I think over time, what it does is it degrades people's trust in the electoral process, in government, in their leadership, right? When in fact, I think the better sort of long-term investment if it can possibly be achieved, is a degree of sort of trust with leadership that, that design, I think, can play, play a role in. One of the things that we do at WideEye is we design products, right? And the user experience of a product, everything from, yes, uh, predictable outcomes when you click a button, to also the aesthetics to make sure that something feels trustworthy and reliable. It's that sort of user experience the, the philosophies of that could use a lot more application in politics, which is that um, I think a consistent through line, emotional through line and compelling through line as to why someone is running for office, um, you know, their perspective on the future of our country. So often on the the left, we're, we're going issue to issue and using individual tactics to try to drive fundraising. But the, but the bigger picture strategy, which is literally what we do at WideEye when we take on a project, is establishing that strategy for all the stuff that we're going to be creating and producing that doesn't exist in politics to the degree that I think it, it probably should. For years, uh, from the early 2000s through fairly recently, the digital agencies, the digital directors... I would hear the theme, oh, we want a seat at the table. We want to be part of the the upper echelons of the strategy of a political campaign. I'm wondering if you're making the case uh, implicitly that like design, branding, strategy like that ought to also have a seat at the table. I just remember an exercise with the, the presidential campaign I worked on where they had a Senate brand that was on their bumper stickers and, and things like that. And they, this was back in 08 and they kind of went out to an agency to redesign that sort of stuff. And I don't know, I can't remember who that was, but I saw sheets of the, of different options that branding people do, right? The people making the decisions right at the top of the campaign, they didn't see something they liked better. They were used to a particular thing. I think they stayed with it, if I remember right. And, you know, the candidate or the head of the organization is ultimately responsible for that choice. 
and it's about them. But a lot of times they're not really an expert in making that decision. And they probably should be delegating that to like whoever's in charge of this. And the campaign manager is not necessarily good at that decision. How can the progressive side, the democratic side institutionalize good decision-making about design if if the people in charge of making those decisions and hiring those things can't necessarily trust an agency to come up with it and maybe shouldn't. This cuts to the heart of, of the relationship between creative people and their partners and clients, which is that without an essential trust, doing good work is almost impossible, right? If you don't have a client who trusts your perspective and your vision and your ability to guide them through the process, it's, it's not going to go well. And it's going to be a nightmare for everybody. And I think one of the things is that like, we've encountered probably more people in the, in, in the electoral campaign space than almost any other space who don't know how to work with creative people. What advice would you give to a campaign manager, to a candidate, to the head of an organization about working with a creative person in-house or a creative agency? My main call to action here, and, and I, I realize there's a lot of nuance to this, and, and uh, there are different motivations for the way campaigns are structured and the way they're budgeted, but I, I would love to see two things happen. One, there be a more outspoken community of designers who work in politics, even more so than they are now, communicating, hopefully in such a way that they can hear with the campaign managers and the hires up of campaigns for how they can actually be better clients, right? How can you actually work more constructively with your designers that will have a, a better outcome for the entire process? And two, by giving uh, creative people a slightly bigger seat at the table and more reasonable budgets and or timelines to work with, um, if, if, that can, if such a thing can be achieved, how do you grow the pool of designers that actually feel that they can have a career in politics? Because that's part of the problem. I can imagine someone saying, okay, what, what's the sort of return on investment here? How can I tell that this putting more money into that, putting more time into that is going to get me more money, more votes, more advocates? How is this going to advance my mission? How can I measure that? Um, I mean, that's that's a, a fantastic question. I feel like that's the kind of thing that probably, uh, and, and, and I'm probably being a little naive here, probably can't be carefully measured because it's a, it's a longer-term investment. By the way, I want to be clear that I think design has become a more central part of the way electoral campaigns have been run over the last 10 years, and that's a good thing. So the trajectory is definitely pointing in the right direction. And I want to be clear that I also don't think design can win or lose elections or necessarily win people's votes. But I do think it is a important investment for the long-term hygiene of a political party and the ways in which 
people interact with their leadership. I want to believe that if you were to cease the kind of spammy email fundraising tactics and lean into a more designed and kind of more respectful user experience of potential voters, over the course of cycles, you'd be having fewer people become cynical and divorced from the political process. I'm probably being totally naive. I think it's an aggregate thing. People are so frustrated with our leadership and with political parties. I mean, I talk to people who have been diehard Democrats their entire life who are just like, oh my God, they suck. That's been born, I think, out of treating people like piggy banks for the last several decades and not like actual people whose lives are affected by policies and want and desire leadership. It's a macro, macro, macro thing. Um, but I do think that creative people are much more skilled at being able to create an environment where the relationship that's built between politics and the people who are impacted by it is made better and stronger. I mean, I've had on the show some uh, folks from the what I would call the reform wing of the fundraising apparatus for the party. And they echo, I think, what you say and one campaign has the incentive to to burn their list and burn everybody's list to raise a few extra dollars, even at the expense of the long-term uh, value to the whole ecosystem, right? It's happening with just political discourse more generally. When we're not speaking to the better angels, we are uh, we are turning people off from politics and that's not our, in our interest, I think as a country, not just as a party. And yet, you know, on it goes and we're kind of spiraling in the opposite direction. You see how Trump is burning the Republican party emails. He's raising hundreds of millions of dollars with scammy stuff. It's also driving people to worse and worse expectations about what will finally provoke them to donate. You have to, to hit a nerve even harder. You have to be a Lauren Boebert to, to reach the crazies, you know, or something. So there's a lot of danger that perhaps, you know, design and just thinking more generally and more collectively would be helpful. It occurs to me, I talked to a woman, uh, Catherine Jones, some time ago. She started something called Collective Agency. I'm not even certain if it still exists. I hope it does. But it was a, a collective of designers that worked together to do the kinds of things that you do, but they had full-time jobs elsewhere in the design industry. It was one idea for advancing this. Um, there's been others. Is there anything that you would propose for like an institution or a role for yourself or for other people? You alluded to that a little bit with, with a, a previous idea, but what else could we be doing? So I, the way I see it is that in a lot of ways, agencies like, like us now, the size that we are and, and the scale that we are and, and how we work, is no longer necessarily a really great fit for electoral campaigns. We're working with the organizations um, that are building kind of longer-term infrastructure in a way that I think we're actually doing really important and effective work. When it comes to electoral campaigns or, the, or, or political parties, 
the DNC, the DTRIP, I would want to see two things happen. One, I think the Democratic Party needs to basically build a creative agency inside the DNC that outlasts cycles, but is actually sustained um, and uh, constantly resourced engine for design. And that that ought to extend everywhere from like, you know, branding and, and social media to website properties and the kind of consistency of messaging and the ways in which things are are being communicated across every single type of platform imaginable. It, it requires structural change, I think, with regards to the way the parties work. And the other thing is a community of freelancers or professionals that can get hired directly on campaigns. I, I think I tweeted a couple of months ago, and a lot of people agreed with me, that any campaign that's going to fundraise over a million dollars should have a creative director. And, and that's an executive level position that needs to be at the table, not just a, a digital director that happens to know Photoshop, um, which is so often what happens. These things are, are changing um, and have been changing over the time that I've been at this uh, the last 12 years or so, but um, a lot more can be done. I think that the everything is sort of built to be short term. One of my favorite sound bites is that in a lot of ways things have been A-B tested to death, which is the idea that if everything is relentlessly focused on getting some sort of data point that validates the decision you're making in as quick a way as possible, which is has there's a time and a place for that. You're never actually going to think longer term. You're never going to actually invest longer term in bigger ideas. If there was a benefactor that could create an operation within the DNC that actually is a sustained, talented, and skilled operation, I think it could make a big difference with the way a lot of things happen, at least within the Democratic Party. But it would also set, hopefully, a standard for other folks. And, you know, rule books for other folks. The problem is there, there's no one at the executive level really with that sort of design expertise there, uh, at least that I'm aware of. And as long as that's the case, uh, that, that those considerations are never going to be taken into account and designers are always going to be turned into a utility. There are a number of creative agencies that have a practice in progressive politics, and you're one of them. Um, I've thought about like trying to have a role in building one myself outside of the party. Right now, the party has access to any design agency. There's a sense in which that might be better than having one internally. In a lot of ways, you have an advantage in hiring talent over a party organization. It's the same thing with with the tech shops. Like there's there's ongoing debate and and compromises between having a team of programmers at the DNC that are building tech for politics versus having vendors that are doing it. And there's some of both, but most of the innovation, not all of it, has sat outside the party in a lot of these areas. Sometimes a party doesn't do a good job of creating tech and sometimes it does. And sometimes the outside world does a great job and sometimes it doesn't. You would have to have great leadership to build a great tech operation and great commitment by the party 
to do that and whether that could happen and then survive. Like, you know what it takes to retain good people and grow an organization. It's the same thing to some extent internally and externally. You need good people, good culture, and a reason for them to keep doing what they do well and innovating and growing and learning. And that sometimes happens better outside. I, I don't know. I think that's part of the part of the challenge, obviously, is that it, all of this is easier said than done, right? Um, you know, it's easy to kind of say these things should exist and be invested in. It's not just a money problem. It's a culture problem. It's a leadership problem. There's a reason why like for-profit businesses like mine, you know, are able to thrive. It's because we have the nimbleness to be able to go wherever we want and to work with whoever we want and, uh, you know, operate outside of the oversight of a political party, for example. One of the problems with politics is that, and, and with external agencies like ours, though, working in politics, is that, and this is something that a lot of folks don't always understand, uh, is that like, oftentimes when we take work with a campaign, it's because we really want to work with that campaign, not because we need the work. In fact, it's never because we've needed the work. Because whatever a political campaign is paying us, it's about half to a third of what someone else is. It just is. For a, an established agency, that's always going to be the case. That's a, lot, a lot of folks don't always understand that. The problem for us is that like, I'll get an email on a Wednesday from a campaign. We don't get them so much anymore that says, we need a logo for Monday. There's just so much important kind of research and work that, that would probably need to be done to do a really exceptional job of that. Um, and we have uh, $1,000 to do it. And then we'll get an email from an organization that's like a full RFP that's like, you know, we have $100,000 to be rebranding over the next nine months. That's what campaigns are often competing with when they're talking to bigger agencies. It's why the investment of creating something that is sustainable and internal, whose attention is being competed for, is so important. There's so many designers that want to be working on these issues. They want to be working on these things. Um, but there isn't a culture for recruiting them and keeping them happy and giving them the creative space to be able to do their best work. I don't know if that could ever happen, but like, it's something that I would like to see is, is someone write a check to someone who has really skilled creative leadership to say, okay, let's build a team of 15 to 20 folks that are funded and spoken for for the next four cycles straight without a hiccup. And let's see what happens, you know, and give them a seat at the table. Well, they could only do a tiny portion. I mean, you have that many people, you have more than that many people, and you can only do a tiny proportion of the organizations and campaigns. But this agency within the, the Democratic Party, I don't think it, it does all of the campaigns, but it, it provides standards and resources. Um, I think it does a lot of sort of the internal sort of branding and um, is a content engine, a really thoughtful content engine for the committees themselves. You can't be doing that volume of work with a team that small. But you can't, but if it's if it's invested in and it's consistent and the leadership is strong, you could be setting standards that filter down. At one point we had the crazy ambition of redesigning every state party's brand and website. We got through about 10 of them 
doing things at about a sixth the cost of what we would otherwise be doing with other clients and realized that it was a horrible, horrible business decision. Money notwithstanding, there was never a consistent team that we were working with long enough to be able to sustain what we were creating. We would launch something actually pretty great. And then six months later, we get a Facebook message, not even an email, like a Facebook message from someone who's like, I'm a volunteer with blah, 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 state party. Can you give us the login to our website? You can't operate like that, where there's like literally no there there. There needs to be an ecosystem that's consistent and invested in to be able to create a community and an ecosystem that actually works. Well, I suspect I've uh, used more of your time than is fair. Is, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, no, this is great. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure some people probably would consider um, designers to be naive, but I don't think any designer is, pretends that the creative work they can do will necessarily change the world. But I think it's an important investment the way the plumbing of any organization requires it. It's like trying to run a restaurant without a nice menu and nice decor. Yeah, like, I mean, that's more what you're talking about. And sure, it does make absolutely. a difference to your dining experience. Although I have found that the food, and I think this is true in politics, the food matters more in the restaurant than the decor. And the candidate sure. or the cause ma matters more than the design the policy, of it. But, but policy the, matters. But they do matter at the margin and ought to be done well if you're running a restaurant. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I think that's I think that's the argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much. Anything else you want to say? No, that this is great. I've enjoyed this. That was Ben Ostrauer. Ben is at wideeye.co. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.